find this program at chrisandreggie.com, chrisandreggie.podbean.com, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Podcoin now, a lot of places you can find us. Today we're going to be looking at the second of three uh, New Teen Titans uh, drug awareness PSAs that came out uh, in uh, 1983. Uh, I called this one number two on the uh, blog just for my own sanity because uh, I didn't want to have three of the same titled uh, pieces up there, even though uh, none of them are numbered. There are three of them, and they're all just the New Teen Titans drug awareness special du jour, you know. Uh, This is the second one, which means that uh, I'll probably be getting less engagement uh, than if I had chosen the first one because you're guaranteed a certain amount of engagement when you do the first one because... that's the uh, Keebler one, and that's uh, the one that everybody knows. This one, however, was not brought to us by Keebler. It was brought to us by the American soft drink industry. And uh, I'm discussing this one in particular because it ever so slightly touches on the uh, an often ignored piece of the addiction puzzle, and that's the psychological addiction to uh, to a particular whatever, you know, anything you might be addicted to. Uh, usually we tend to focus on the the physical uh, pieces of the addiction puzzle, but the psychological end is uh, is also very important, and it's uh, it's actually uh, the piece of the addiction puzzle that I have the most uh, personal uh, experience with. The story I'm going to tell today has to do with addiction, um, and I want to apologize to folks who have uh, dealt with addiction in their lives, uh, especially you know serious addiction because what I'm about to talk about is going to feel like the very definition of nerf ball compared to uh, what uh, a lot of folks might have dealt with in their past or or present Uh, and that that is that for about 12 years of my life I was unable to sleep without the use of sometimes copious amounts of uh, sleep aids sleeping pills uh, or or PM painkillers you know the the pills you take at night to help you sleep, you know, just something to help you get into the end zone. You know, if you're trying to, you're trying to sleep, you get just about there and something stops you. And uh, for me, uh, that thing that stopped me was just the fact that my mind would not stop racing. And uh, you know, I've, ta- I've talked a time or two about, uh, you know, anxiety and, and stuff like that. Uh, nothing uh, in specific, uh, nor do I think I, I will. But uh, it does uh, cause me to, or did cause me to, lose sleep. And uh, there was a time in around 2004, I was uh, living in a new apartment, and uh, I was just struck by this strange cocktail of insomnia and anxiety. And uh, it went on for a good three weeks, three, four weeks. And uh, it was just uh, nights of restless maybe like an hour hour long sleep as I would uh I'd go to bed at normal time but I would just lay there and I would think and I just wouldn't be able to fall asleep and uh, I mean that that's not something that's particularly special (laughs) it's something that I'm sure a lot of people deal with uh regularly but uh I had never been hit by it quite this hard and I can't point to a particular you know seminal event in my life or profound event in my life that led to this sort of a thing, but uh, it was what it was, and uh, I was just getting no sleep, I was worthless at work, Uh, I was probably a danger to everybody on the road, and uh, 
it was just a really, really difficult time. And during this time, I happened to get really sick with a, like a flu or maybe just a really bad cold. And in order to make it through a day of work, I had to stop at a, uh, I think it was a Walmart. I stopped at a Walmart on the way in and uh, I wanted to get the, you know, the the non-union equivalent uh, Dayquil, you know, the whatever they call it at a Walmart. Uh, and I go in to get this, uh, these Dayquil pills, and, uh, they only had, like, that weird box that has, like, 12 daytime orange pills and, like, six green nighttime pills. And so I grabbed that because I had to get through the day, and, uh, it just wasn't gonna happen any other way. It was just a really, really bad cold. And I got through the day, but, uh, that night I got home, and... You know, I noticed that I had those green pills in there. You know, I noticed that I had the nighttime pills, and I'm figuring, hey, it's nighttime. What the hell? Why not take it? And I took it, and I was out. It put me out for the night. And I woke up the next day completely refreshed, and it was the first full night of sleep I'd gotten in quite some time up to that point. And so I now knew the power of nighttime medication, which... uh, would inform a lot of my uh, late evening decision-making for uh, the next little while. And before we get a little bit uh, deeper here, I just want to say something about the timeline that I'm working off of here. Generally speaking, I don't use a timeline. I'm usually doing everything from memory, and uh, there's a good reason for that, because a lot of the things that I've discussed are kind of rooted in these profound moments in my life or moments in my life that I... (laughs) I have a lot of uh, uh, regret and guilt over. So it's easy to kind of draw a line from A to B to C when you have something that, you know, pivotally changed your life. Whereas this story kind of lived on in the background of my life for, you know, 12 years. It didn't so much... uh, There were very little in the way of profound moments. There there are going to be a couple we're going to discuss, but... The uh, the overall you know arc of this story was uh, was background and it uh, it didn't negatively affect me in any visible way, which uh, is probably a good and bad thing for uh, longevity's sake. But uh, but we will just continue from here. So took the day the Nyquil, got a good night's sleep. So I took the rest of the Nyquil and got subsequent good night's sleep and figured that, okay, this worked. And, uh, but I ran out and the next few nights I went right back to the old trouble of, uh, not being able to fall asleep. So back up to Walmart, I go and I'm going to buy whatever can put me to sleep. And, uh, since I wasn't sick anymore, I just went directly to the sleeping pills and, uh, was surprised to find out just how expensive they were. Um, especially when compared to things like generic Walmart brand uh, Tylenol PM or Pain Relief PM, whatever they call it. And uh, so I started taking those and uh, started with a pill, and, you know, and it put me to sleep and it was fine. And uh, just started taking a pill every single night and not really thinking much of it because it's, you know, it's just a pill, you know, it's not going to not going to really do much. But 
that's kind of the problem because after a little while it didn't do much. So then it was two pills. And uh, then after a little while, two pills didn't do anything. And then it was three pills. And it was upwards of five or six of these pills every night. And it was just barely doing the job. And, you know, you, you hear a lot of things about, uh, you know, pain painkillers, uh, ibuprofens and stuff like that, that they really do a number on, uh, on your liver. And... You know, it's not something I wanted to deal with. You know, I, I'm not planning on dying ever. <laughs> so, uh, so, but let alone anytime soon. So, I, I don't want my liver to be completely trashed. You know, at any point. And so, I started thinking critically about uh, what I was putting into my body with such regularity. And I was working with a fellow who had told me that he had just been prescribed something called Seroquel. And uh, I think it was new at the time, or newer at the time. And uh, at the time, I was, uh, you know, you, you think about holdovers from past generations, you know. Like in the 80s, you'd see some, like, seemingly displaced hippies, you know, just living in the 80s and uh, it, just being in a wrong generation. But, uh, me in the 2000s, I was kind of like a displaced yuppie, you know, I had a lot of the, uh, a lot of the yuppie conceits, and, uh, among those conceits was that I saw a counselor to, uh, to talk about my crippling fear of success, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's silly, but, uh, so I, I did see a counselor, uh, to talk about my fear of success, of course, and, it's not difficult to get a referral to someone who can prescribe you medication. And uh, having dealt with anxiety, that wasn't something all too foreign uh, for me. So next visit, I inquired about Seroquel. And uh, it's interesting, when you know the name of the drug you're interested in taking, it's kind of easy to get it. And uh, especially if... A representative from the company just dropped off a whole lot of samples uh, that need to be dispersed. So I left the office with uh, with just a one box, four pills of uh, Seroquel. And uh, one thing that uh, my buddy warned me about was that... Well, he warned me about two things, actually. The first thing was, don't take it on a weeknight, because this thing will knock me out. The second thing he told me was that it's a tiny pill because for some reason in my peanut brain, I, uh, I, I, can, never, uh, I can never consider that a tiny pill will do as much, uh, will have as much of an effect as a big pill. Uh, <laughs> he and I would uh, meet with uh, uh, stakeholders and, and salesmen and stuff trying to work out deals for the company, and uh, we would go... We would frequent a place uh, in Phoenix called Angie and Jimmy's, and uh, they had really good uh, uh, sandwiches, and they also had something like a 70-inch pizza. It was a pizza that would be bigger than the table. And before we would go and chow down on this pizza, we would each take a, uh, a, you know, a heartburn pill, and he would bring them in, and he, he always had the little tiny prilosex for himself because those worked fine for him but he would get like these giant pills from me because 
looking at the tiny Prilosec, it's like, eh, it ain't going to work. And, and you know, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy at that point. It just won't work. And uh, so he got me whatever the biggest pill he could find, biggest heartburn pill he could find, because that was the only thing that I would convince myself would uh, would work. So he warned me about the strength of Seroquel as well as the size of Seroquel. And uh, sure enough, I get home, open the box, and it is tiny. I mean, it, you could you could probably balance it on the, on a pin. You know, it's a small, small pill. And I'm like, ah, this ain't going to do anything. Uh, but I did heed his warning, and I didn't take it until the weekend because uh, he said that when he started taking it, it really affected him the following day. So rather than risking, you know, messing up a day of work, I just decided to wait until the weekend like he had uh, suggested. And I tell you what, I took this pill, and, uh, you know, if you've ever engaged in any kind of uh, meditation or guided meditation, I should say, which I did in my fear of success uh, therapy sessions, uh, there is... There was one that uh, that was particularly effective, where I imagined I was you know following a lead here, and I was imagining that my big toe was actually a cork, you know, like a cork on a bottle of wine, and you pop the cork on it, and all of the energy and the stress just drains out of your body through this now gaping hole in your foot, um, like you'd you'd be guided to feel the pressure disappears like your forehead is now relaxed and you'd feel relaxed and your eyes are now relaxed and you know you'd swear that they were hitting the back of your skull you know then it's your mouth is relaxed and your your mouth would open and gape down and it would go all the way down the body as if you were actually being drained after i took this seroquel it was like somebody cut my leg off and all the energy burst out because i had to i had to i had to hold on to furniture just to get to the couch and uh, I had never, ever taken something like that before. And I never took anything like that again because it scared the hell out of me. <laughs> and the next day, just like he had told me, I was wiped out. That I was useless the next day, even more useless than I usually am. And uh, so I couldn't do Seroquel. Uh, and so, and you know, I don't know what the side effects were. That might have been, you know, three or four times damage to your liver. <laughs> As compared to what I was taking. But went back to the regular pills here. And uh, and I kept them up for years. It was years of, uh, of four, five, six pills a night. And, and you know, it was, it was not easy. You know, it was not like I was taking the pills and falling asleep right away. I was still struggling to fall asleep. Which, you know, goes to show that I'm... I'm treating the wrong thing, you know, I'm not really facing what the problem is, and, uh, and I'm really not looking at this as a problem, because, uh, you know, it did let me sleep, I, I was sleeping better with them than I was without, I was doing great at work, per, my personal life was great, everything was great, and, you know, any time I would have been affected by taking these things, I'd have been asleep, so I wouldn't have known, so, I mean, I could have been violently shaking and just been asleep and didn't realize it. So, uh, and I wasn't married yet, so it was just me uh, living alone in an apartment. But uh, kept doing it, kept doing it, kept doing it, and uh, and I kept, you know, toying with the idea of uh, of going to a sleep study. And and you know what? 
gun to my head, I couldn't tell you what a sleep study is. But, you know, I know that they do them. Yeah, <laughs> And uh, I uh, kept toying with that because, I, you know, I, I knew I, did, I shouldn't be taking these many pills. But, uh, but I, I would think about doing a sleep study. And, uh, and the, the, the few times that I did inquire, um, and this is around the time that I was out of work, so, if you go to uh, if you go to job fairs, at least back during like the big uh, job crisis, you do get a lot of uh, college and grad student researchers there, uh, just uh, offering opportunities for, you know, to, for these kind of clinical trials or for studies, where, you know, you try a a new uh, drug or a new dosage or a new treatment plan, and it you know it's a it's stuff that goes on all the time. It's just during the job crisis, so they were actually showing up at uh, job conventions. Uh, they they still might, for all I know. I, I haven't been to one in ages, but I do remember going to them when they weren't there, and then I do remember going to them when they were wall-to-wall uh, researchers. So I did talk to someone about it, but uh, they told me that they'd be happy to take me so long as I didn't take any sort of medication for six weeks before which means I would have to stop all the sleeping pills and I would have to stop my heartburn medication and it just didn't it didn't add up to me I was like okay I can't make this work right now you know as I didn't want to change my diet (laughs) I still wanted to eat like crap and I still wanted to sleep so I uh I didn't uh, take them up on it. I didn't participate in the study, and I just kept at it. We fast forward here to probably around 2014, 2015. We're getting to the end of this uh, riveting tale. Um, we talk a lot on this show about uh, moments of profundity. It's one of the things that I overuse. It's a phrase that I overuse in real life as well as on the air. Um, there are things that I believe very strongly in, and I feel like so much of our uh, of our code is you know written by just these profound moments. And I had one such moment uh, either 2014 or 2015. It was late 14, early 15 ish. And uh, it was one night, uh, we were going to bed, I took my pills, and probably ten minutes after we got to bed, my wife got a phone call that her grandmother was in the hospital, and she wanted, you know, she wanted to go, but I was done for the night. You know, I'd, I'd taken the meds, there was no way I could drive, or more like, there was no way I was going to risk driving, I should say. Um, but, uh, she wanted to go, and it was on the south side of Phoenix, and that's not somewhere I wanted her in the middle of the night, uh, but I couldn't drive, you know, and so she went by herself, and, uh, the whole time she was gone, I, you know, I kept running things through my mind here, uh, you know, worrying that something was going to happen to her while she was out and I wasn't there, uh, thinking about what would have happened if I would have went with her and I would have been worthless anyway. I'd have been just sleeping. And then it hit me. The wife and I always, you know, toy with the idea of having children. Uh, whether we have them naturally or we adopt, we're, we're open to a few different options at the moment. We're, 
We're just uh, fearful of committing. We're not very good at that kind of thing. But I kept thinking, what would happen if we had a little girl or a little boy and they hurt themselves in the middle of the night? They fell down the stairs. They fell out of bed. Uh, anything, you know? And I wouldn't be able to take them anywhere they needed to go. I wouldn't be. I, I wouldn't be able to do what I'm supposed to do as a parent, you know, and all because I'm taking these stupid pills to help me sleep. And at this point, it had been something I was doing for so long. I mean, I was probably, I was, I was doing it from the time I was 24 to 35. So, I mean, it's almost a third of my life. And when you're like, when you're in your head as much as I am, like you start to break things down even further. It's like you think that three days out of every week I've been alive, I've been on these pills. Or nine hours out of every day I've been alive. If you break it down, it, it just it, it can really <laughs> catch up to you and really just uh, affect you uh, profoundly uh, as, as uh, with any moment of uh, profundity. And again, I, I do understand and appreciate that this is nerf ball compared to what a lot of folks might be dealing with uh, addiction-wise, but uh, this is the only story I have. <laughs> so it's the one I've got that I can actually share honestly. And so I decided that I would start weaning myself down and started at probably around four pills, I think. And, uh, and it was baby steps the entire way down. Uh, because I had it in my mind, and it very well might have been the case, that I had all this built up in my body chemically, you know, where I needed to slowly uh, get off this stuff or get it down to a manageable level, if, in fact, there is a manageable level for this sort of a thing. So it was a, it came down to breaking the pills in half to where it was like, okay, today it's three and a half, and we'll do that for a few days, and then it would be three, and then two and a half, and two. And as I'm doing this, I'm finding I'm getting just about the same amount of sleep as I would had I taken four or five. So keep going down, keep going down, two pills, one and a half, one. Finally, I'm down to a half a pill, and I'm sleeping the same as I was when I was taking four or five. So it just uh, became ingrained that it was just more about like the ritual of doing this. I, this wasn't clear to me yet, but uh, we'll, we'll get there. But I found that this half a pill was doing me just as much good as four or five. And uh, eye-opening, uh, no you know, pun intended considering the uh, circumstances, uh, just uh, blew my mind that I'd uh, been, yeah, really, I've just been abusing my uh, my insides for so long, taking so many of these damn pills, and uh, when only a half a pill was doing the same job. Um, then I tried getting rid of that half a pill and just doing nothing, and it didn't work at all. And... Uh, then I went back, and it was a half pill again, and that wasn't working. So it was a whole pill, and that wasn't working. It was just I had worked myself up in my head that that I needed to... It was as though I was trying to, like, restuff a pillow, you know? It was like I had everything that I had built up. Because I started talking to myself into thinking, it's like, well, maybe, maybe everything I had in me just half-lifed out, 
you know, and, uh, and now I was clean and it wasn't working. So I needed to do, I needed to get back onto the routine. And as luck would have it, I was, uh, in my senior year or no, I was in my junior year at university at this point. And, uh, when you're on the path to a, uh, degree in psychology, you have to take a lot of psychology classes. And among them were a few that were, uh, uh were dealing with addiction. It was the psychology of addiction classes. And I tell you what, if there was a better time for that to hit me, it was, uh, I, I couldn't tell you. That was just such perfect timing. And there's a saying in the uh, psych departments that the best research is me-search. Uh, you are your best subject because you know your history. You know, you know, you have access to everything you do or have done or in a way, everything you will do. Um, and so you are your best test subject. And we learned a lot about... Um, the, te the professor had, uh, had offered us the opportunity to discuss uh, openly some, uh, you know, some of our things that we struggle with addiction-wise. And, you know, we talked about things like uh, food addictions. And, you know, we talked about that a few weeks ago on this show. I, I have a particular weakness to cookies and Pop-Tarts and uh, <laughs> only recently managed to kick that habit. But, uh, you know, some of the folks in the class were uh, talking about things like that. Uh, you know, they need to have a slice of cake before they go to bed or they always stop for the, for the extra-large coffee. You know, it's stuff like that maybe buying too many scratcher tickets, you know, it was just everyday things that, you know, you're not necessarily trying to, to fix or to wean out of your life. It's more about understanding that something is there. Um, so all the advice that was given and all the research slash me search that was conducted was about identifying, you know, um, not so much about wiping anything clean or ending any sort of a behavior. This was all about just, you know, deducing that there is an understanding between a person and a given vice or a given behavior. Um, and so when it came to me, I said, you know, uh, for the past 12 years, I've been taking sleeping pills every single night. And uh, the class got pretty quiet. And I thought, you know, I thought mine was nerfy. And... <laughs> You know the 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 slice of cake at night is uh, makes me look uh, a little more hardcore, I suppose. But we uh, didn't talk much about it with the class, but the professor wanted to talk to me about it, and uh, she suggested that, and she suggested this to everybody. But uh, but personally, she came over to me and told me that I should keep a journal, and keeping a journal. Let me tell you, if you keep a journal and you're honest about the journal. You're going to learn a lot about anything in your life, um, just so long as you're honest. Uh, the journals had a purpose here, and they were, there's something called the ABCs, uh, where you look at an antecedent, which is something that comes before. You have the behavior, which is the behavior happening, and then the con it's either consequence or conclusion. I can't remember what the C stands for, but... The ABC, Antecedent, Behavior, and Consequence or Conclusion. So you're taught to look for, you, 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 do, you have the behavior, but then you have to look before the behavior to see what 
what the catalyst might have been, or if there was a catalyst to begin with. And then, you know, you look at the consequence or the conclusion. So with me, it's I take a pill, and the conclusion is I fall asleep. You know, and, and for me, for the ten years prior, that's all that it was. It was a behavior and a conclusion without taking into account that there might be an antecedent. And uh, this is where my timeline gets a little bit jittery because a lot of these things were happening concurrently. Another one of our projects for this class was that we were to attend um, support groups for addictions. And we didn't have to participate, but we had to just observe and we, we couldn't tell anybody we were there to observe, of course, but you just observe just to see what sort of things are out there. And, you know, if you do go into a clinical field, you'll have firsthand knowledge and experience in these support groups. And you're able to refer people and you're able to uh, to speak knowledgeably about pros and cons and and uh, what might be effective for certain case by case situations. Uh, you know, if you have an introverted addict, you know, they might not get anything out of the in-person uh, groups, but they might find that the online uh, approximation of those groups would be useful to them. So you, it's just about getting a broader understanding of what resources are out there that you might be able to professionally refer out. And so uh, I was all set to go to an in-person one, but I suffered a long box injury where I, I put tremendous stress on my sciatic nerve where I couldn't even stand for about two weeks. So I did my first couple of these groups online. And uh, they're very uh, impersonal if you want them to be, um, but they do, uh, they do facilitate um, discussion. And uh, I can see that people get a lot out of them especially when I was visiting these things day after day and I was seeing a lot of the same faces show up and they would tell the same stories. And, you know, I kind of logged that into my memory bank there for a bit. Just, uh, it's like, okay, well, that's, that's something, you know. I didn't know exactly what it, what, why this person kept coming back to tell the same story. And then I went to a few in person and... A similar uh, phenomenon happened, you know. I, I was seeing some of the same faces multiple times a week. And they would tell the same story without variation. And I, I remember we had to give our we had to give our takeaways in class, and that's that was my main takeaway. Because I, I do see support groups as helpful, uh, especially when uh, you know when some of the people suffering, uh, they don't have uh, a support group. Uh, they might, the person in their life who's supposed to be their support group might actually be part of the reason why they need the help. You know, you, you don't know. Every case is different. Um, and uh, a lot of these, these groups that I went to were not for addicts, but they were for, you know, friends and family of addicts, the, the Al-Anon sort, of sort, sort of a situation there. Um, but these, these people were telling the same stories, and that was my big takeaway, and I did talk, talk about it with the class, and the professor brought up a lot of great points about uh, the different sort of addictions out there, uh, things that aren't necessarily physical. You know, I, I, you, I hope I'm telling the story 
uh, in a way that it's followable, <laughs> because I, I never know if I am, but these were people who, these people who kept going to the same groups, or the uh, different groups actually, and telling the same story to different people, it was feeding something in them. You know, this was a, a need that they that they had, and that was the way that they, they that they filled the need, and, uh, and that led me to do some research about uh, psychological aspects of addiction, and uh, you know the the quick and dirty and the inch inch deep mile wide is that you know physical addiction is you know you you have a physical dependency on something, uh, the the psychological one is is kind of like tricking your body into thing and, and this is again very very broad definition here and it's it's a very niche look at a very broad definition so i'm doing it absolutely no favors by by saying this but uh it's kind of like your mind makes you think your body needs a certain thing and i started wondering about the sleeping pills and uh, and i i kept at my journal and I was tracking my antecedents, my you know my befores, and it was always you know very very similar. And I and to take it a step further, I even covered what I did that day. Like it was it was it a strenuous day? Was it a day I you know sat on my butt? You know, are there any differences in how much energy I exerted in the day to you know inform how easy it would be for me to fall asleep? And it came down to one night where. I was uh, just about to fall asleep. I was in bed just about to fall asleep, and I remembered that I forgot to take the pill. So I was just about to fall asleep, but what woke me up was the fact that I didn't take my sleeping pill. And, you know, like, confetti could have, like, popped off over my head because it was like, okay, this is now, it's almost assuredly, like a ritualistic thing that I take this pill, I go to sleep. I take this pill, I go to sleep. Now, I, I get this sort of idea that maybe it's just the ritual of taking this pill that is helping me fall asleep. It's telling my body that there's something in it to make it go to sleep. When, for all I know, it's not. You know, it might have been the entire time. It might have been me tricking myself into thinking you know, the whole placebo effect. It could have been, you know, I could have been eating a sugar cube if someone told me they put you to sleep. And it was only with that discovery that I was able to stop. And I stopped cold turkey. And it just, uh, it was, you know, it's like, it's like the, the anti not thinking about how planes fly because if you think about it too hard planes are going to start falling out of the sky because they shouldn't be able to do that it's like the opposite of that I, I, real, I had the realization that the pill wasn't needed and that I was only doing it as some sort of a ritual to trick my body into thinking it's time to go to bed and uh, I mean there's a whole science to uh, what they call sleep hygiene you know and I was pretty much breaking every every you know expert rule of that for the entire time I was dealing with this uh, you know they tell you that if you're laying in bed awake for more than 20 minutes get out of bed because you don't want to train your body into thinking that your bed is a place to be awake you know and it's just it's little things like that but uh I never learned those things I would toss and turn and toss and turn like a lot of folks do for hours and what I was doing was unwittingly training my body to think that my bed was a place to be awake, you know. Um, 
So sleep hygiene is a very, uh, very powerful thing if you if you stop to think about it. And part of my unwitting sleep sleep hygiene ritual was taking these pills. So just the understanding that I didn't need to because I was nearly asleep until I remembered I didn't take it was enough for me to stop doing it. And uh, I haven't taken a sleeping pill in four years at this point. And, and again, I, I, I have an understanding and an appreciation for folks who struggle with actual hardcore addiction. Uh, and I know that you know, taking a few Tylenol PMs doesn't really amount to a hill of beans in comparison. But uh, again, these are <laughs> this is the me search. These are the me story. So uh, it's the only one I could tell and, and not be lying to you. So there we go. And uh, with that... I think it's time to uh, enjoy a comic book, a new Teen Titans comic book where they very, very, very briefly talk about the psychological aspects of addiction. All right, new Teen Titans drug awareness special, the second one from 1983. This one's called Battle, written by Marv Wolfman with pencils by Ross Andrew, inked by Joe Gaiella, led is Ben Oda. Colors Adrian Roy, edited by Dave Manick, with special thanks to Bruce Miller and Stephen Jacobs. I think this one came with a dollar uh, cover price. Uh, and when I discovered this one, I, I found it in a uh, discount um, suite at one of the local shops here. Um, the Phoenix area, I gotta, I gotta say, has just got some of the most awesome uh, comic shops and uh, a wonderful amount of quality comics being put into the discount areas. Uh, I mean, I guess mileage may vary on the issue we're going to discuss right now, but uh, I found this, and I was uh, gobsmacked. I found it a number of years ago, but I never knew there was more than one. I I knew that there was the first one, the one that everybody knows with the Keebler Elf on the cover, but I didn't know that... uh, I didn't know that these were here, and then I also learned about the uh, Supergirl Buckle Your Safety Belt uh, PSAs, uh, all five of those issues, uh, Reggie and I did discuss on the Cosmic Treadmill prior, and I will include the links in the show notes. I was actually going to include a bit about uh, the Protector, a character we're going to meet in a little bit. I was going to do our little Protector intro as a uh, Cosmic Treadmill classic uh, segment, but I've come to find that the uh, the show doesn't it doesn't really adapt well to sound bites. Uh, it's either I take a 20-minute chunk or I take nothing at all because uh, the way we script things, everything kind of flows into its into one another. Uh, so it, it's kind of hard for me just to take little snippets and uh, repurpose it here as a cutaway segment. Uh, and also the show is, a, is long enough as it is. I don't know that I need to hold you all captive an extra five, ten minutes uh, to uh, make a point that I could just tell you right now. The Protector is a stand-in for Robin because, as mentioned, Keebler sponsored the first ones, and Robin was licensed to Nabisco, so they couldn't use Robin in anything that had to do with a a cookie tie-in, I guess, or a cookie-sponsored book. But uh, we'll get right into it here. And this issue opens with the Titans and Protector, and they are rather straightforward during this issue that the the Protector is not a Titan. He is just an associate of the Titans, and of course Robin is not with us for this visit. Uh, They follow up on a tip. They're staking out a drug drop. Uh, Seemingly, this is a continuation of the previous drug awareness issue. Uh, They're at a small amusement park, and it's clearly after hours. Once they witness the drop, the team springs into action. 
Now this time the Titans team features Cyborg, Wonder Girl, Raven, Starfire, and Changeling with Kid Flash taking the place of Speedy as an auxiliary member. In the first issue, it was uh, it was Speedy doing uh, as our little guest star. Now it's Kid Flash. Now the team makes short work of the drug pushers, with Protector acting especially brutal in the beating he dishes out. Uh, he actually throws a couple of thugs through a plate glass window. After a brief chat with the authorities, Protector asks Kid Flash for a private chat. You see, Protector's cousin, Ted Hart, has recently moved to Wally's hometown, Blue Valley. Teddy's a recovering addict who very nearly let his drug abuse cost him his life. Protector asks that Kid Flash maybe keep an eye on him, just in case he needs a hand up or maybe a shoulder to lean on. Wally, being the swell cat he is, says he doesn't mind playing babysitter to a perfect stranger. And so, the next day, Wally heads to the Hart house and introduces himself to Ted. They walk together to Ted's school, and on the way, he confides in Wally in regard to just how far gone he was before he fully embraced his recovery. When they arrive at school, Wally introduces Ted to a girl named Amy King. As they become acquainted, they overhear a nearby couple arguing about one member's frequent drug use. Confident that Teddy's in good hands, Wally excuses himself so that he can make it to his own school. We follow Ted as he navigates his way through the apparently drug-dealer-riddled hallways of what we're going to assume is Blue Valley High School. Here, Ted speaks with Brian, the uh, fellow who was part of that earlier argumentative couple. He's a drug user, and he offers Ted a good time. Ted flat-out tells him, no, he's clean, and uh, Brian appears to be pretty cool with it. And, and that's that's one weird thing about uh, the uh, drug PSAs from the 80s, it's... In my experience, it was always like nobody would want to share, you know. Not not that I was ever in that, in those circles, but it always seemed like whoever scored was, you know, perfectly fine keeping it to themselves and uh, didn't need to push it on people. So maybe Brian is one of those guys who just, you know, thinks uh, more for me. Now they pass a uh, cliche drug dealer, he's wearing leather and shades, and his name is Adam, and he's conducting so little bit of business before class. Adam's main squeeze is the girl with the coral-colored hair, and her name is Coral. She's upset that Adam isn't all that fun anymore, because he's always high and stuff. As Ted passes, she makes eyes at him. In class, Ted is the perfect student. He's attentive, he's intelligent, he's engaging with the uh, curriculum, He's, he's doing a great job. Now, as he and Amy leave class together, the scowling Coral looks on. The next several pages feature vignettes of the next several weeks. Ted and Amy grow closer by the day, and the Titans are keeping the streets clean from would-be drug-dealing scum. For all their progress, uh, the team is still unaware of just who's behind all these shipments. Time passes until one fine day, where Ted is leaving school for the day and notices that his buddy Brian is hanging around... That, uh, that awful drug dealer, Adam. He's looking to buy a gram of snow. Shortly, Brian and Ted are lounging on the hill. Bri is partaking as Ted is just enjoying the beautiful day. And then, they're both approached by the covetous Coral. She's got herself some dope that's laced with angel dust. She doesn't really screw around, does she? She offers a toke to Teddy, who refuses until she starts to question his manhood. He ultimately gives in and sucks it down. In the distance, Adam is looking on, and, you know, from the appearance here, we're not sure if he's upset that his girl's gone or happy that he's got himself a new customer. Another month passes, and Ted's personality has begun to change. 
He snaps at his steady girl Amy, and he's acting like a complete tool in class. And uh, one day he even storms out of the school. Amy, Brian, and Brian's girl Linda give chase. The girls head over to to the West House to check in with Wally. They explain what's going on, and Wally knows he's got to pass the information on to his buddy, Jason Hart the Protector. Kid Flash zips across town to find the the Protector facilitating a parent-child drug support group. Wally decides to have a seat and wait this one out. And this is where the Protector talks about some psychological uh, parts of addiction. So this is the entire reason we're discussing this issue. (laughs) And the reason that, uh, or the thing that facilitated however long that spiel I went off on as we started went. Um, Now, uh, we do see a tiny little fella discuss his past drug indiscretions here. And looking at him, he looks like he's about six years old. So I'm, I'm wondering if maybe whatever drugs he took stunted his growth or something. He is very, very tiny, very, very childlike. Uh, I'm not sure if he was supposed to look this young, but uh, he looks very, very young. Now, after the meeting, Kid Flash spills the beans, and the two head out to confront the terrifying teen, the scary sophomore, the leather Lothario, Adam, who, uh, as it just so happens, was in the middle of conducting business with our boys Ted and Brian. And as they see Kid Flesh and the Protector swoop in, I mean, the Protector is swinging in on a line that I don't know what it's attached to, but, you know, it it is his comics. We've got Brian looking at the heroes, and he calls them the cops, which, uh, I don't know, they don't look like cops to me. Anyway, the geeks flee as the Protector swoops in, again, on a line that's affixed to to something in this suburban town, and he dropkicks Adam. The two fools run directly into the path of an oncoming truck, and if not for the presence of the Titans, would have been so much roadkill. The pro goes on to a lecture, and uh, he tries to level with the jerks, and they blow him off. And when I say lecture, I mean they actually had to cut out part of the Protector's face because of the the size of the word balloon here. This is uh, a lot of talking here. Later on, we go to the Hart House, and Teddy is confronted by his worried parents. They see that he slipped back into his old ways and want to assure him that he has their complete support in his recovery. Teddy knows that, you know, parents just don't understand, so he shoves his dad out of the way and leaves the house. Ted intends to bury his troubles and his head in the bosom of cordial coral. Only he overhears her telling Adam that she was just using Ted to make her inattentive jerk man jealous. This is uh, just a little too much for Ted to process, so he barges into the boys' room to find Brian about to do a line. Ted's got lust in his eyes for that smattering of snow, and the two tussle until it's scattered all over the filthy, disgusting, brutal bathroom floor. The fiends don't seem to care as they press their faces to the ground and snort up just as much as they can. Uh, Who knows what came up with uh, with the stuff there? Oh, God, how gross is that? I mean... I don't even like the soles of my shoes touching the floor in a public toilet. <laughs> there would have to be quite a bit of money on the table to get my face anywhere near the floor of a public bathroom. Now, not satisfied with their foul feast, the boys beeline it to the main man, Adam. Only problem is, they don't got the green to buy the green. Adam tosses him an aged and nasty-looking joint that probably consists of whatever Adam skimmed out of the cat pan that morning. The pair of clowns realize that they need money, and they need it quick. That night, they plan to, get this, hold up a local convenience store. And unfortunately for these geeks, they, uh, in this case, they literally bring a knife to a gunfight. Uh, They attempt to shake down 
the proprietor here is Sam Waterman, and they uh, have this lousy little knife. Sam is not amused, and so he blows a hole in Brian's gut without a second thought. Ted, being the stand-up guy that he is, runs like a chicken, ultimately collapsing outside of Amy's house, and, uh, you know, I'm sure her parents just loved that. Back with the Titans, if you remember them, this is a Titans book, believe it or not. The team is watching yet another drug drop. Who'd have thunk Blue Valley was such a hotbed for drugs? Uh, Now the team, once again, makes short work of the pushers. Raven suddenly feels the pain of another and does what she does. She teleports to Brian's side as he's being loaded into an ambulance. Later on at the hospital, Teddy and Brian are sharing a room and they pledge to get their heads straight. They're joined not only by the Titans, but by their respective parents and significant others as well. Ted promises that from this point on, he'll be a hero by staying drug-free. The Titans walk straight off the panel, satisfied with a job well done. So yeah, that certainly was a Teen Titans story, wasn't it? Well, kinda. I mean, they weren't in it very much, but uh, it said Teen Titans on the cover, and they, you know, some of them did show up. Uh, it's a, uh, you know, it's not a bad story. I, I know, like these days, it's kind of, you know, one of a, <laughs> to, you know, use my old chestnut. It's a, it's a funny haha sort of a book, um, where we just like kind of laugh at how trite it is and. Uh, and, you know, we I think we kind of project that their hearts weren't really into this kind of a project, and this was more a uh, fulfillment of some sort of a contract that DC had with uh, with the government or whoever, you know. But it's not the worst thing in the world. I mean, if I were reading back in the day and I was a big fan of the Teen Titans, I'd probably be just as happy reading this as I would reading anything else. I, I would miss that Robin wasn't there, but... Uh, and I'd wonder where he went, and I'd wonder who this purple geek is, but uh, it, it's not that bad. <laughs> it's not that bad. Um, and, and again, we uh, if we take it into the context of exactly what it is, and uh, it, it really could have been so much worse. And uh, a subsequent uh, anti-drug PSAs would, uh, would, would become worse and worse and worse. So for what it was, I guess I enjoyed it well enough. I mean, there were some silly scenes in there for sure. Uh, but uh, yeah, this is still Marv Wolfman in his prime writing Teen Titans in their prime. So it's just, a, it's it's gravy. You know, it's a bonus that we get to read this. And uh, Ross Andrew, I'd have preferred Perez, but Andrew ain't bad either. I mean, he's a fantastic artist in his own right here. Um, of particular note, uh, one of the things I really, really enjoyed about uh, his art was how he made these like these minor changes in like ter- in Teddy's face as he was spiraling deeper and deeper into his addiction it seemed like with every panel his face was drawn to be a little bit more haggard and i thought that was a, an awesome little bit of detail um though uh, you know you take the good you take the bad uh, donna troy maybe appeared in six or seven panels in this issue and she had a different hairstyle in every single panel so there was no consistency there, and that's uh, consistency from you know panel to panel and page to page is one of those uh, things that kind of get under my skin, and uh, I couldn't help but to notice it here. Uh, now, having the very little experience in addiction treatment and group facilitation that I have, I was very happy to see that Marv did you know some research here. He he talked about the psychological aspects of addiction, which you know they they're. Generally speaking, they're downplayed uh, because they're they're not as visible 
and it's probably a lot harder to tell a story about them. You know, it would have to be a very introspective sort of a story to tell in order to get something like that. Whereas you could have relapses and withdrawals, and that's like a visible thing that you can add to a story, and it's uh, it's clear what you're what you're looking at when you see it. Uh, but even though it was just a passing mention, I very much appreciated that uh, it was mentioned, and uh, it was such a short mention that I didn't even bother mentioning it here because it was just so slight. But uh, I was very pleased, regardless of that. You know, to sum this issue up. It was fine. Uh, it wasn't bad. It wasn't great. Uh, the first one was a lot better. I don't know why I think it was better, but I feel like it was. Um, I would recommend checking this out if you're a fan of novelty comics <laughs> and if you're a, a Teen Titans fan. I mean, this would fit in if you if you eject the purple geek and put Robin in there. This could have been a very special issue uh, in the main run of New Teen Titans. It would fit in there just fine. Um, I, I don't know that we'd even remember it if that were the case. It wouldn't have been uh, you know, a special standout issue, but I don't think it would have been something that would get laughed at like it is uh, as it stands now. And I might be projecting because I, I don't have a uh, wide breadth of people that I talk to who, uh, who know of these things, so when... Uh, the folks I do talk to think these are silly. It's it's kind of the way that I see everybody as viewing these issues here. Now, uh, this was a very 1980s piece, but if we were to add some smartphones and maybe some different fashions, it could just as easily be made current. Uh, these very special issues, when you don't play them to the nth degree, there's like a timelessness, you know? And... Uh, it might seem passe or trite today, but it's still something that is relevant, and it's still something that people deal with, and it's still something that uh, that uh, people probably need to be educated on. So, didn't hate it, didn't love it. It was an issue, <laughs> and it uh, it facilitated me uh, sharing a little bit of a personal story. For the hot take this time out, we're going to be looking at the letters page from ElfQuest, issue 4. This is the Marvel epic run, and these letters are going to be all about the first issue of ElfQuest, and we actually discussed that here on the show not too long ago. We looked at the, uh, it was the DC version of the 25th anniversary of ElfQuest number 1, and uh, I figured that might be neat to see what uh, just what the Marvel fans were thinking back in uh, when it, whatever year this was, <laughs> back of the... Uh, the genesis of uh, the epic comics line here. So we're going to start with uh, a little bit from Richard Peeney himself. He says, I was wondering if my days as a letter editor were over. I'm very glad they're not. We both also wondered if we'd get mail response to ElfQuest, and there doesn't seem to be a question any longer. Now, if someone would kindly provide a shovel so I can uncover the word processor and see about a letter column. So, uh... I guess this got a lot more press than they were expecting. And our first one comes from Lawrence in Texas. He says, I am writing to you in regard to the new ElfQuest series. I would like to know if a subscription to the comic will be offered, and if so, what the cost will be. It almost seems like uh, that might be some prominent placement for this, uh, for this missive, huh? Uh, <laughs> Richard answers with, Glad you and many others asked. The subscription information you're looking for is contained within the Indicia. Uh, which is that tiny type at the bottom of the page one. Check it out. Our next one comes from Chris in Florida. He says, ElfQuest number one was great. 
The drawings were super, and the comic book was fantastic. I would like to know when issues num- issue number 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6 are coming out to the newsstand. Richard replies with, ah, an easy question. Respectively, 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 months after issue 1 appeared there. So, uh, ElfQuest is a monthly book. Our next letter comes from Dave in New Jersey. He says, I've been a big fan of ElfQuest since 1978, and I have to admit that I was a bit skeptical when I heard you would be putting out the series again in color. I picked up number one and read through. Not too bad. Only too much new material. I feel you should stick to the same ElfQuest that appeared in the magazines. No offense intended, but pages 17 through 21 seem childish and unnecessary. Since I greedily scoop up anything that has to do with ElfQuest, I'll overlook the problem. Good luck. And uh, I don't know that I agree with the uh, childish and unnecessary, but these uh, the ElfQuest magazine, it would fit more than one standard size issue in each magazine size issue. So you might get, and I don't know the hard numbers, but if you pick up ElfQuest number one, the magazine, it might be... Like the first maybe one and a half issues that you would have gotten from the epic run So it was just more pages And in order to facilitate a cleaner break between the issues They would have to add extra material to the monthly book The monthly Marvel book To give you a cliffhanger and then bring you back up to speed So there had to be a cutoff point Rather than just stopping an issue Possibly in the middle of a you know sentence so they had to add some things. They had to be a little bit creative with uh, with segues in between issues. Um, and uh, Richard Pini does not reply to that one. Our next letter comes from Nettie in Alabama. She says, or he says, ElfQuest is one of the, strike that, is the best comic I have ever had the pleasure to read. I bought the issue number one by Marvel because it was a first issue and therefore a possible collector's item. I have the color volumes, but never bought the original comics for a simple reason. I never saw them. I assume the color volumes are exact reproductions of the Warp editions, so why the additional pages in the Marvel edition? Don't get me wrong, I love having some new peony drawings, I just wonder why. So, maybe that's why Richard didn't answer uh, Dave and Jersey. He wanted to answer both at once. And he says, Good question. When Warp Graphics first published ElfQuest, low those many years ago, we put 32 pages into each issue. Epic Comics average about 22 pages per issue, which would mean splitting the original story in odd and awkward places. Wendy does new pages of art and story to bridge these gaps and provide continuity, as well as providing new glimpses into what's going on. So Richard explained it there much better than I did rambling through a few moments ago. He continues, uh, One thing I remember with great fondness and not a little frustration from the original series was the never-ending stream of questions from readers. Looks like the floodgates have opened up again. Now our next letter comes from Andy in uh, Houston, Mississippi. I didn't know there was a Houston, Mississippi. It says, On page 3, panel 5 of issue number 1, what are the short brown things and what are the little white ones? Are they fairies or something? Also, what era of time are the stories in? Richard replies with, The answer to your first question lies in future issues of ElfQuest. Longtime readers know we, we know we never give away answers that might spoil the story later on. The time of the story is vaguely prehistoric. Mammals have come into their own, but the dinosaurs haven't all died out. And dinosaurs is in quotes. 
Our next letter comes from Tim in Oregon. He says, Are you going to give the elves other woodland friends like dryads, sprites, pixies, and centaurs? Richard replies with, One of our greatest hopes is that the elf qu- as, as the elf quest goes on, you will come to see that it's different from any other fantasy story you've read. For that reason, there won't be the same kinds of creatures, unicorns, dragons, pegasi, and so on, that you may be expecting. But wait until you see what we've replaced them with. Now our next one comes from John from Parts Unknown. He says, I bought ElfQuest number one. I th- I'm sorry, I thought ElfQuest number one was awesome. But on page four, it said that the elves' powers are very weak. And on page 12, Cutter is using some sort of telepathic power to call the Wolf Riders. How can he do this? Richard replies with lots of practice. It's important for the Wolf Riders to communicate silently so not to frighten game or alert humans. As a result, they've honed their skills at, quote, sending more than anything else and are now masters at it. Our next one's a very short one from Matt in Connecticut. He says, why do the humans call the elves demon spawn? And there's no reply yet, but uh, I think we're getting one soon. We have a letter from name and address withheld by request. Hmm. Now they say, my mom said that ElfQuest is demonistic and that she would burn it if she found it in my room. I know this may sound stupid, but it's true. She doesn't even know what ElfQuest is about or what it is. Right now I'm trying to talk my mom into letting me join the SCA, which is a club that enables you to relive medieval times. My mom also thinks the SCA is demonic, or demonistic. Anyway, I need someone like you to tell my mom that ElfQuest is not demonistic. To which, Richard Peeney says... ElfQuest is a fantasy like any other in that it tries to say something about the world we live in by using symbols. The elves, the humans, the planet itself, the creatures, the characters you'll meet. These are all the tools we use to tell the tale. Hopefully you'll find that ElfQuest is not so much a story of good against evil, but of knowledge against ignorance. The primitive humans called the elves demon spawn because long ago their own ancestors, in their ignorance, were badly frightened by the elves' ancestors. Ignorance often leads to fear and then to hate. The elves have nothing to do with anything demonic. In fact, we think you'll find that they're very natural and innocent beings simply trying to survive. Which is a very good answer. A very good answer, and it's... You know, the the, the satanic panic, Reggie and I have talked about that a time or two, and uh, we did that... We did the the Jack Chick track uh, issue of... Uh, issue. <laughs> episode of the Cosmic Treadmill not too long ago. Um, and it's just interesting that something like ElfQuest might get mixed up in that. It's uh, that that that's, that kind of blows my mind a little bit. Now our next letter comes to us from Brian in California. He says, "What can I say but marvelous? I liked ElfQuest when it was black and white. I read my friends' copies, but the color version is awesome. It blows me away. Great job, Glynis, and that's uh, Glynis Ween, the uh, colorist." Some people I know tell me that things like ElfQuest is for kids and you're wasting your money on ElfQuest. Try insert comic book name here instead. But I know better. For years I've wanted to get my hands on copies of ElfQuest. Now my wish has come true. I'm glad Marvel didn't make the same mistake, turning ElfQuest down twice, and that Archie Goodwin owned up to his mistake. By the way, ever notice how Archie always looks like Archie no matter what he's drawn into? Must be the mustache. And, uh, 
you know Archie Goodwin had uh, they they did a lot of caricatures of him in the uh, in the bullpen letters pages and stuff like that. And I think yeah, in the like the inside front cover of a lot of the early epic books would be a little thing from Archie with a little caricature of him. And it's funny where ElfQuest is for kids when not you know just a few years down the line there's going to be a full-on elf orgy you know and there's going to be a lot of uh, a lot of death and it's a uh, it's interesting that uh, our man Byron well it's Byron is his name here is uh, being told that this stuff is for kids now Richard replies with actually it's because primal image that he is Archie is forgive me I can't resist an arch type okay that was almost as bad a pun as I would do. Uh, our next one comes from Matthew in uh, South Carolina. He says, ElfQuest is a great story. I got issue one at a local drugstore. I told my mom to get my brother one, and she said no. Now we have to share it. How are you supposed to share a comic book? And uh, Mr. Peeney here spares us the uh, wisdom of uh, whoever said cut the baby in half and says, with good grace and with as many friends as you can. Our next one comes from Keith in Pennsylvania. ElfQuest number one impressed me so much that I will probably read issue number two. Well, there you go. That's a, that's a win-win. It's interesting to view an alien race, the elves, as being the persecuted innocents while homo sapiens seem to be the villainous misguided ones. Cutter doesn't seem to smile much. I wonder if he has the capability to be happy. To which Richard replies with, The relationship between the elves and the humans is a complex one and will become more so as the quest progresses. As far as Cutter's happiness is concerned, let's just say he's in for some roller coaster ups and downs. Our final letter comes from Lynn in, in uh, Nevada. They say, I recently bought your ElfQuest novel. Two days later, I read in Marvel Age that Marvel would be reprinting the comics as part of their epic line. In the article, it was slated that the actual quest begins after the Wolf Riders find the Sunfolk. Not having read the original series, I was unaware of this and thought that Journey to Sorrow's End would have, would have to end this remarkable fantasy. My question is, will there be another novel based on the ElfQuest comics? Also, is there any chance of the comic book series being continued, or does the series end without any loose ends? Forgive me for this long letter, but in the space of one novel, which I read in a matter of hours, it was so interesting. The Wolf Riders snared me. A month between issues is too long to wait. And uh, Mr. Pini replies with, A month is too long. Thank heaven you weren't there the first time around. It was four months between issues then. We don't plan any further novels at this time, but there are more new ElfQuest stories in the works that go beyond the end of the first series. And uh, he's uh, talking about the you know, Siege of Blue Mountain and uh, everything that came after that, because ElfQuest... I, it, they they did the final quest not too long ago, and it wouldn't surprise me if something else came out of it, too. Um, the novels, I did have a couple of novels. I don't know that they were written by uh, the Peonies. I, I, it's been ages since I've even laid eyes on them. But uh, they were kind of... Uh, I think they were like part of a line called the Blood of Ten Chiefs, and you would learn a bit about the chiefs of the Wolf Riders that preceded Cutter. So his bloodline going back... You know, ten generations, and you get little uh, vignette stories, and these were prose novels, no, uh, n you know, no sequential art or anything. But uh, they were uh, they were they were fairly interesting, for what I can remember. It's been, Lord, it's been like twenty five years, maybe longer than that. Ugh. But uh, 
There you go. This is uh, the uh, hot take look at the arrival of ElfQuest into the Marvel Epic line, which was the first volume of a comic book, an ongoing comic book, that I endeavored to complete, and uh, one that will always be very, very important to me. All right, and that'll do it for this week here. I want to thank you all for listening. Uh, if you want to get a hold of us, you can do so at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter. And uh, I, you know, I was talking about how Twitter updated not too long ago, uh, but also Windows updated and Chrome updates, like, it seems like every two weeks. I haven't uh, been able to log into the Twitter, so <laughs> it's been it's been several weeks since I've gotten into the uh, Cosmic T-Mill uh, Twitter handle. Hopefully Reggie has, still has access to it. Um but you can reach us individually at Reggie Reggie and at Ace Comics. You can check out the website at chrisandreggie.com, and uh, you'll be able to see a listing of our shows in chronological order. It's uh, actually been updated after, uh, ooh, boy, about six months of no updates. I made sure everything was updated not too long ago. Uh, if you want to check out the site that this show is named after, you can do so at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. And if while you're there you see a book you'd like to hear me talk about, let me know, and I will uh, do it. Uh, also, if while you're there you find a book that you'd like to come on and talk about, let me know. We'll see what we can work out. I want to thank you so, so much for listening. I'll talk to you again real soon. So long for now. See ya. <laughs>